Well, if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Exodus again? Exodus chapter 2. Last time I was here, we thought about Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. And um, today I'd like to look at Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15. So, I'm not sure if everybody was here last time or not, uh, but just in case you weren't, we'll read from verse 1 so that we can um, be reminded of the whole um, story. So Exodus chapter 2, and reading from uh, verse 1. So, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother and Pharaoh's daughter said to her take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you wages or I will give you your wages so the woman took the child and nursed him and when the child grew older (coughs) she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son she named him Moses because she said I drew him out of the water One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he was out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, or heard of it, He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. And we'll end at at the end of verse 15. 
just a prayer together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to still our hearts in your presence again. And you've brought us safely here this morning and we thank you for that. And we thank you now for the opportunity to study your word uh, together. Thank you for the freedom to do that. Many throughout the world um, are can only do uh, this kind of thing with the fear of somebody telling the authorities on them or somebody breaking in to uh, have them arrested and yet Lord we can do this freely and we thank you for this great privilege and we thank you for brothers and sisters that we can fellowship with and we pray that you'll bless us together but Lord we pray that we'll meet with you as well as meeting with other, each other and we ask that you'll come and speak to us now all of us including the one who speaks Come and speak to us, Lord, as we place ourselves under the authority of your word. And as we wait for your speaking voice, we pray that you'll come and minister to us. We pray this in our Saviour's name. Amen. Well, you hopefully remember some of what I said about Moses last time round. Moses... Um, was found in the bulrushes by Pharaoh's daughter and uh, then she, she, he was given basically to the care of his own mother which uh, was miraculous and she was able to keep him no one daring to make her afraid after all she was caring for Pharaoh's daughter's adopted son um, or at least soon to be adopted son and so no one could say a word to her even though Pharaoh had issued orders that all the Hebrew boys were to be thrown into the Nile to the crocodiles so God had preserved this young boy and for 40 years the first 40 years of his life he lived in the palaces of Egypt walking the corridors of power those ornate buildings um, with breathtaking opulence and just magnificence as far as size goes and this young Hebrew boy is taken from a slum in one of Egypt's uh, key cities and now he's brought into the palace soon to be brought into the palace and he will uh, walk these corridors of power and be educated by the Egyptians and and, and trained up in all kinds of ways um, and we'll come to that in just a minute or two but 40 years he spent walking the corridors of power in Egypt then of course uh, he spent 40 years minding sheep in the backside of the desert uh, he was 80 years of age before he took up his role as leader of the Israelites so 40 years he spent wandering in a desert trying to find pasture somewhere for his sheep, sheep that he was minding, his father-in-law's sheep. Forty years just living in a desert. Incredible. Eighty years in the making, this man of God. Not five years, not ten years. Eighty years in the making. God was training him and preparing him for his life's work. How long does it take God to prepare a man or woman for the work that he has called them to? Well, I suppose the answer to that question lies in it depends on the work and it depends on the person. 
Uh, it depends what God has in mind and it depends where the person's at and uh, all of that is part of the equation. But the truth is, there is a sense in which God never stops working on us. Never. Every day we get up, God is in the process of shaping us and moulding us and making us into the image of his beloved son. God is so delighted with his son that he wants to make all of us just like him. And we've been, says in the book of Romans, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. God is in this process of shaping us and making us and refining us and purifying us and making us a bit more like Jesus. We used to sing a song many years ago, he's still working on me, he's still working on me. I know I'm not what I ought to be, but he is still working on me. And I hope that God's still working on all of us. And that none of us have reached a point where we are content with where we're at. Because we can always become a little bit more like Jesus, can we? I mean, some of us are saved and stuck. And we haven't become even just a a fraction more like Jesus in the last ten years. And and it's a question for me, it's a question for all of us. Is God still working on us, changing us and refining us day by day, making us more like Jesus? Are we launching a royal assault on the sin that is so unlike him and putting on all of those beautiful qualities that we know are just like him? Well, that's for all all of us to wrestle with, uh, not least me. In these five verses that uh, I've read to you from verses uh, 10, I think is it 11 through 15, I just want to lift three things uh, from this text. I want you to think about the training that uh, Moses enjoyed, a little bit about his life in Egypt. Um, We touched a bit on that last week, but but I just want to pick up on that again um, and and perhaps a little more focus on on, uh, the latter part of his period of uh, life in in the palaces of Egypt so the training that he enjoyed is number one secondly I want you to think about the Egyptian that he eliminated uh, a little bit about this, this killing of the Egyptian and what was going on there And thirdly, I want us to think uh, just about the threat that he escaped because he ran into the desert in Midian to get away from the threat of, well, probably losing his own life for killing an Egyptian. So those are the three areas. And the first one then is the training that he enjoyed. And just two aspects to that, the early years and, and the later years. But firstly, the early years. Not sure how long Jochebed uh, got to spend with her little son once the Egyptian uh, princess handed him over to Jochebed to be nursed. But uh, from what I can gather reading around the subject a bit, she may have had him till somewhere around eight or nine years of age. That seems to have been the age at which Egyptians officially adopted uh, little uh, children. So she may have had him until he was about eight, eight, nine years of age. And during those early years, it seems to me that she clearly instilled into him a sense of identity. When he became an older man, we're told in this passage that we read together that he went out to visit his own people. 
Now how did he know they were his own people? He's now walking the corridors of power. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He's clean shaven like an Egyptian. He has his skin treated like an Egyptian. He goes to the temple of the sun god to study like an Egyptian. How did he know that these were his people? The answer to that question is undoubtedly that his mother taught him that he was a son of Abraham. And he never forgot it. And no doubt his mother reminded him or told him the stories of how God tapped Terah, who was living in Ur of the Chaldees with his three boys, and tapped him on the shoulder and told him that he wanted him to step out on a journey to the promised land, the land of Canaan, and how they got to Haran and stopped there. And then God came and spoke to Abraham and singled him out and brought him to this place called the promised land. And when he got him there, promised that he would bless him and bless his descendants and promised that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we, of course, know as we read the New Testament and look back at that promise that he was that God was <coughs> predicting the coming of Abraham's greatest son, Jesus, who would bring blessings, of course, untold blessings to the nations. And no doubt... Although I'm sure Jacob didn't know about Jesus, but no doubt she told him all the stories about Abraham, Isaac and, 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 and Jacob. And Joseph, the story of Joseph and how Joseph had come to Egypt and, and how they were uh, sojourners down here. They didn't belong in Egypt, they actually belonged in Canaan. Somehow she instilled into him a sense of identity. Not only did she instill into him a sense of identity, she also instilled into him a sense of destiny. Uh, I, would have, I would imagine that his mother, Moses' mother, would have told him about the amazing events surrounding his birth and how all the other Hebrew boys were thrown into the Nile to the crocodiles but God in his providence had preserved him and rescued him and, and how, he had, uh, how the hand of God seems to have been upon him and he must have had a sense that God had preserved him for a reason because speaking about Moses in Acts chapter 7 Stephen, remember when Stephen was being stoned to death he spoke about Moses in that great sermon that he preached and in Acts 7.25 he says because Moses supposed that his brothers, his fellow Hebrews would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. He assumed when he attacked that Egyptian that his fellow Israelites would understand that God was raising him up to be their leader, their deliverer from this bondage in Egypt. But they didn't understand and they didn't buy into it, not at least at this point in his life, not for another 40 years actually. But he had a sense that God's hand was upon him. And he had a sense that God was preserving him. And that God had a role for him in, in, in the future. And it seems to me that he had a clear sense of destiny. And he may have got it wrong at this point in terms of timing. But God did raise him up to be the leader of the children of Israel in the future. And I, of course, I'm left asking the question, well, where did he get this sense of destiny from? And I, I think he must have got it from his mother. 
I think it was his mum that taught him the stories of the Hebrews and told him that he was one of the people of God and that God's hand was upon him, preserving him and that God must have had some kind of role for him in the future as a leader of his people. Somehow he got it from his mother. Uh, We touched on this last week a bit, but I think Jochebed was a faithful mother in instructing her children in the things of God. And it it begs the question of me, I've got five children, how diligent am I in instructing my children in the things of God? Three of my children now have left home and they're in their own world and they're doing their own thing and I I see the pull on on them to go to the left and to go to the right and and, uh, I, I constantly think about, well, how well have I prepared them to face these challenges? And have I given them a sense, a clear sense of identity that, that they are one of the people of God and that they should never forget that and they should walk in a way that pleases God? And did I read and pray with them enough is something that I ask myself on a regular basis. And, you know, at night, did we take time to read the scriptures to them and, and kneel down beside their little beds and, and pray with them? And, and were we diligent in taking them to Sunday school and letting them hear about the wonderful stories of, of the Gospels and of Jesus? And, and, and have I instilled into my children? I, I know that it's a work of God. I know that. I, I'm, and I'm fully committed to that. I know that only God can do the work that needs to be done in their hearts. But that doesn't let me off the hook and it doesn't let you off the hook if you're a parent. Are we really making an effort to instill into our children that they belong to a different world if they're Christians? And they're marching to the beat of a different drum if they're marching to the beat of Jesus' drum. Well, that's the challenge of Jochebed. He had a clear sense of identity and a clear sense of destiny. What then about his later years? Well, he spent the later part of his life in Pharaoh's palace. And Acts 7, again, this sermon that Peter Stephen preached, verse 21 and 22, this is what it says. Stephen, uh, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, says... Pharaoh's Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and in deed. So she brought him up as her own son. And we thought a little bit last week of what it must have been like for Jochebed to bring him to the palace and hand him over when he was eight. And what it must have been like for Moses, a little boy being taken from his family and all of a sudden finding himself in this gigantic bed and gigantic bedroom and servants attending him. It must have been fairly overwhelming for him. A Jewish historian called Josephus, and he's a fairly famous Jewish historian, tells us that because Pharaoh, this Pharaoh had no son, uh, that really Moses, who was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, was now the heir to the throne of Egypt. Which I, I find really striking. Here he is, and uh, he's in line, at least in line to the throne. If Josephus is right, uh, 
He could have been the king of Egypt, this man called Moses. Whether that's true or not is something that we'd need to be careful about. But uh, if it was true, it makes sense of his. Uh, it makes his sense of identity all the more significant and all the more meaningful. He gave up a life of power in Egypt to identify with God's people. Well, he, uh, she brought him up as her own son, Stephen says, and he was educated in the wisdom of Egypt. Um, educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So the Oxford or the Cambridge University of ancient Egypt was the temple of the sun. And he would have learned to read and write in hieroglyphics. He would have studied subjects like mathematics, astronomy, chemistry, medicine, law, philosophy, theology, the study of the gods, and music. These are all subjects that he would have covered in his studies. He would have been put through his paces as far as physical education was concerned, and he would have been a fit, lean uh, individual, sportsman-like in his physique, no doubt. He had the finest education that the world could offer him, Moses. Thirdly, we're told that he was mighty in words and in deeds, but he was mighty in words. Now, later when we meet him at the burning bush, he seems to have been a bit reluctant to go to Egypt because he wasn't overly confident in his own ability to speak publicly. There is at least a suggestion that he had some form of speech impediment. But here we read that he was mighty in words in the sense that he was eloquent, very eloquent individual with words. And mighty indeed, Josephus, again the Jewish historian, tells us that when the Ethiopians invaded Egypt, Moses was the commander of the Egyptian army. And I don't know if that's true, it's outside the Bible, so we need to be careful with it. But if it is true, Jewish historian writing telling us when the Ethiopians invaded Egypt, Moses was the commander of the Egyptian army. And he drove the the Ethiopians home, captured one of their leading cities, and returned to Egypt laden down with the spoils of war. Some of what uh, Josephus says needs to be taken with a pinch of salt, incidentally, but that's one thing that he did say. And it's clear, isn't it, that God is in the process of training this man to be a leader. You would need to be blind not to see what God is doing. This man will write five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible. Where did he learn how to write like that? In the palaces of Egypt. This this man will lead the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years. And and will face attacks from folks like the Amalekites. And all kinds of other ites. As as he leads the Israelites through their territory. And he somehow, by the grace of God, will keep these people together and keep them safe and get them to the very brink of the promised land. And Joshua will lead them in. And you say, well, how did he learn to be a leader like that? And the answer is God trained him, I think, a bit at least, in the palaces of Egypt. He became a gifted military leader. Training is important. I hear people all of the time, and I spend most of my life involved in the training of people for Christian work. But I hear people all of the time saying, oh, training is a waste of time. But God spent a lot of time training his leaders. Eighty years he spent training Moses. 
The disciples were with Jesus for somewhere around three years, watching him, listening to him, observing everything that he did. And God was in the business of training him, training them. God is training you. Don't know if you, if you knew that or not. As you've wrestled with depression and struggled with those clouds that have descended on you and you can't shake free from, but somehow in the grace of God you work through it. Maybe God was training you to be a help to other people who are in exactly the same circumstances. Maybe you won't be a Billy Graham and preach to thousands upon thousands all over the world. But God has given you experiences in your work environment that will help you to enable younger Christians who are going through the same kind of stuff. And you can sit down beside them on a Sunday and encourage them. God helped me when I was at your stage in the Christian life trying to take a stand at work. And it was difficult and I know it was difficult. But if you remain true to the Lord, he'll help you. You could come alongside other people. You may never become a John Piper. But you But the time that you've spent with older Christians has given you a grounding in the word of God and it will enable you to help younger Christians and to ground them in the word of God. The truth is God is training all of us. All of the experiences of life that he takes us through will enable us to serve him and minister for him. In a way that we never thought possible. We look at Moses and we see him in these palaces and walking these corridors of power. And we think, well, what's God doing? He's preparing a leader. God has been preparing you to serve him in all kinds of capacities. You can identify with people that I could never identify with. They wouldn't listen to me. Because I haven't been through the stuff that they've been through. But you have. And God's brought you through and through that you can minister and serve him. Well, the training then uh, that he enjoyed his early life and his later life. Just a little bit about this taskmaster that he eliminated. Two things about that. First of all, his crime. Moses... uh, was isolated from the suffering of his fellow Hebrews, no doubt, in his palace. He lived in luxury uh, whilst his fellow Israelites, fellow Hebrews, lived in the anguish of slavery. You know, tramping mud and forming it into bricks and baking it in the sun and building Egyptian houses and buildings and getting whipped by Egyptian taskmasters when they weren't doing enough the Egyptians lived a horrendous life in Egypt and Moses was sheltered and shaded from all of that as he lived in his wonderful palace But one day he decided to go for a walk and he decided that he would venture into the area of the city where he knew that his own people lived. And while he was out there he witnessed an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And Moses as he watched could almost feel the pain of the whip of this Egyptian taskmaster as he beat and lashed this Hebrew And it seems that Moses looked both ways and and the writer of scripture, and if it's Moses himself, he wants us to see that he looked both ways. 
to make sure that no one would see him, to make sure that no one was coming. And then he jumped in to defend his fellow Hebrew. He struck this this Egyptian taskmaster with such ferocity that he killed him. Now, I'm not sure that it was his plan to kill the Egyptian. I don't know whether it was or whether it wasn't. I think maybe he wanted to just merely fight off this Egyptian and defend his fellow Hebrew. Um, But we can't condone what he did. After all, he murdered someone. And murder is terrible in the eyes of God. It's to destroy a human being that's created in the image of God. And no matter who you meet, if they're a person... That person was created in the image of God. And uh, one of the Puritans, uh, one of the Puritans, Thomas Watson said, to destroy human life is to tear up a picture of God. Because that person bears in some way a resemblance to God. There's The image of God is stamped on every facet of his being. And it's more than just he's a spiritual being. It extends to things like his creativity. Or, and his ability to communicate. Um, you know, you'll never see a chimpanzee write, um, you know, poetry. Never ever will you see that. Because we are created in the image of a God who communicates. You'll never see chimpanzees design skyscrapers or, or, or supersonic aircraft that will go to the other side of the world. Because we are created in the image of a creative God. And God's image extends to every aspect and facet of our being. And every person out there is important and meaningful. Because they're created in the image of God. And Moses killed someone with his hands who had been made in the image of God. And we may say that he was defending the Hebrew and so he was. But he shouldn't have taken the life of this Egyptian no matter how you look at it. God alone, alone must set the boundary of our days. It's not ours to end the life of anyone. God alone must determine when their lives end. And all of that leads us to the conclusion that we need to think about how we treat people. If people really are that important, then we need to think carefully about how we treat people. They're not there to be used and abused. People are there to be respected. If for no other reason than they, they are part of the people of God. The only positive thing that we could say about Moses in this is that he was full of compassion for his fellow Hebrews. And you have to admire his sense of identity with God's people. That day, he chose the Lord's people over the people of Egypt. That was the day that he decided his future would be with them and not with the Egyptians walking the corridors of power. He he decided that his loyalty that day was with this despised, downtrodden and dejected people group. Egypt offered him wealth, importance, luxury, even the possibility of a throne. But Moses turned his back on all of that and identified with God's people. And that's big. That's huge. Moses had come to a crossroads and he had to choose, where do do my loyalties lie here? He had to choose, where will I hang my hat? And he chose God's people over the Egyptians. He decided, that's where my loyalties lie. I'm with them, I'm not with them. 
Now, he did wrong, and he killed an Egyptian, and that was wrong. But he did choose God's people over the Egyptians. I wonder if you've come to a crossroads, and you need to choose, is it God and God's people? Or is it the world and all of the people that are going in the opposite direction from God? Do you you need to choose? Like, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? When are you going to make the decision, I'm with God and with God's people? And if you haven't made that decision, maybe you should make it this morning. And stop wavering backwards and forwards with a foot in this camp and a foot in that camp. Maybe you need to say, like Joshua said, As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Or we're going to give ourselves wholeheartedly to following the Lord. Well, his crime, a horrendous crime, the only saving grace was that he was protecting uh, an Egypt, a Hebrew, but he had nevertheless committed a crime. And the second thing I want you to notice is just a cover-up. Moses hid his body in the Egyptian sands. He probably thought no other Egyptian would ever find out. There doesn't seem to be any suggestion that he told the Hebrew who had witnessed his crime not to say anything. He probably just thought that the Hebrew would have had enough sense to keep it to themselves or to himself. But when he returned to the crime scene the next day or the same locality, he discovered that there were two Hebrews fighting. And uh, Moses asked him, why are you fighting with each other? And the one that was in the wrong, he said, well, why are you attacking your brother? I mean, he's your fellow Hebrew. I mean, the enemy is the Egyptians, not your fellow Hebrew. Why are you fighting with uh, another Hebrew? And he tried to stop them fighting. And soon the Egyptian or the Hebrews rose up against Moses and says, Who are you to judge us? Are you going to kill me the same way as you killed that Egyptian? Tried to cover up. There was no acknowledgement of any wrong. He thought he could hide it and walk away and that would be the end of it. And, and that you don't have to deal with sin and you don't have to put wrongs right and there are no consequences you can just live like you, as you please and do your own thing and it will never catch up with you but it caught up with Moses right here it caught up with Moses covering up sin never works does it Adam and Eve found that out in the garden of Eden they sinned and uh, God came to talk to them as usual. And where were they? They were hiding in the garden. They didn't come to talk to God. They were hiding somewhere in the garden. And they thought that they could hide. They thought they could pretend nothing had happened. Don't have to talk about it. Don't have to face it. And people have largely been hiding ever since. But sooner or later, sin will find us out. David tried to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. Remember that? He had slept with another man's wife. Even though he had multiple wives of his own. He slept with another man's wife. And he thought he could cover it all up. And pretend nothing had happened. And God sent a prophet to him. And said, let me tell you a story about a man who had lots of sheep. And you know what he did? He went down to his neighbor. And he took their only little pet lamb. Because he had guests. And he brought it home and he killed it. And he cooked it. And he fed it to his guests what do you think of a man like that David a man that would take a pet lamb from a neighbouring farm the only lamb they had and feed it to his guests and he had a whole farm of sheep 
What do you think of a man like that, David? David was enraged and said, that man must die. And Nathan said, you are the man. Because you had more wives than you needed. And then you should have had, and you went and took someone else's wife. You're the man, David, that did it. And sin always catches up up with us. You know what I have noticed of recent? I have noticed that, that there's a lot of Christians who are unprepared to acknowledge their own sin and sinfulness. And they're, they're unprepared to say sorry. And they're unprepared to say, I got it wrong and I messed up and I should have behaved differently. And they just do outrageous stuff and they move on as if nothing happened. But it catches up with you eventually. What I've noticed about the great saints down through history is that the, the more holy they get, the more struck they are by their own sinfulness. Robert Murray McShane, I mean, he was so godly that when he walked down the aisle in St. Peter's and Dundee, people would weep at the sight of him. Just weep at the sight of him. So he was the very epitome of holiness. And yet he said of himself, I can see the seeds of every sin known unto man lurking in my own heart. And Moses thought that he could run away. Well, two things then finally about the threat that he escaped. So the consequences of his sin. Um, It seems to have been a calculated act. He looked both ways. It's not that he just jumped in. He seems to have thought through what he was going to do. And in Acts 7, 24 to 25, we're, we're, we're told this. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, Stephen again speaking about Moses says, And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who had oppressed and he struck down the he struck down the Egyptian for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand but they did not understand so it seems that this was more than just an act of rage it was something that he thought through he thought that he could force the hand of God almost he saw his opportunity to show the Hebrews that he was ready to be their leader He thought that he would impress them and convince them that now was the time for him uh, to uh, take up this leadership role and for them to follow his leadership. But they were having none of it. The other Hebrews, they didn't want him as leader. Instead of admiring him, they began to despise him. Oh, who made you judge over us? And are you going to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian? They became hostile towards him rather than becoming submissive to him and following his leadership. He had taken matters into his own hands and he had tried to push things forward in his terms. But it didn't work because it wasn't God's time and it all went horribly wrong. It wasn't God's time and it went horribly wrong. Sometimes we're unprepared to wait for God's time. And we're unprepared to do things God's way. We take matters into our own hands. We pull the strings behind the scenes. We step outside the guidelines God has given so that we can somehow get our way. We can't wait for God to open the doors so we kick the doors open ourselves. And the truth is, it will probably all end in tears. It will all go wrong, horribly wrong. 
It will end in disaster. Better by far to wait for God to work. Better by far to wait for God's time. Because God's way is best and God's time is best. And Moses, it's not time. You shouldn't have tried to force the hand of God. And then finally, not just the consequences of his sin, but the compassion of God. Think about Moses now. He can read and write in hieroglyphics. He studied at Egypt's finest academy. But he's now running for his life because he knows that when it gets back to Pharaoh that he's killed an Egyptian, he's doomed. He's, he's absolutely doomed. And he runs and runs and runs and runs until he reaches the desert of Midian. No trees, no leeks, no cucumbers, no palace. Just sand and more sand and sun and more sun. And he eventually reaches a well. And I'm sure he was glad to see the well. Who knows how he felt as he looked into the water and saw his own reflection looking back at him. What a mess he had made of his life. He must have thought, God surely finished with me now. I thought I could have been the leader of those people and led them out of Egypt. But it's all over. Look at me. I'm on the run. And here I am in a desert miles from anywhere. But God wasn't finished with him. The fact that he found a well is proof that God wasn't finished with him. And listen, it's not just any well. Not just any well that he's reached. This is the well where he will meet his future wife. This is the well where he will meet the mother of his boys. This is the well where he will be introduced to his new employer. This is the well of a new beginning. This is a well of God's grace. This rascal has killed someone. And he's on the run from the Egyptians. But he has discovered the well of God's amazing grace. It was the well where he ex- it was the well of the new beginning. And he should have experienced the wrath of God. But instead he experienced God's compassion. Maybe you feel that you've made a mess. Ever feel like you've made a mess? tried to do things your way and it all ended in disaster and you wonder you know, could God give me a second chance is it possible that God would ever want anything to do with me again look at the mess I made look at the decisions that I made look at the direction I went in the fact that you are here this morning tells me that maybe just maybe God does want to do something more with you there's a well of grace and it's called the cross And it's a place where you could meet God and he could forgive you and cleanse you and give you the opportunity to start over again. I never cease to be amazed at the grace of God to me. How many times have I made such a mess of it? Oh, I haven't killed anyone. I've never killed an Egyptian and buried them in the sands and then tried to run away. But I've been less than a perfect husband. I haven't been the father that I should have been on every occasion. As I think about my kids now going in different directions in life. And as I think back on my life with them. I haven't always been as faithful as I could have been towards them. In terms of Bible reading and praying with them. Oh but God has brought me to a well of grace again and again and again. And forgiven me and cleansed me. And given me a new beginning.
because that's the kind of God he is he doesn't give up on us even when we're on the run and made a horrific mess he brings us to a new beginning his faithfulness is new every morning his blessings are poured out on us every single day of our lives even though we don't deserve them and I invite you to enjoy this grace and to bask in this grace and to let this grace wash over you again this morning so the three things were really simple his training, God was training him in the palaces of Egypt to be a future leader you see the experiences that God has given you in life God wants you to use all that you've learned there to minister to other people and serve him and we thought about the Egyptian that he eliminated I mean he killed someone treated him horrifically but he did identify with God's people and finally we thought a little bit about the threat that he evaded as he ran into the desert he must have thought that's it there's no hope for me but God brought him to a well where he would meet his wife the mother of his sons his future employer and God gave him a new beginning and that's the kind of God that we have and that's why we're here in New Beginnings Church this morning because this is our God well that's a good question Um, I think you just need to pour out your heart to him and ask him to forgive you that's what I did just let me tell you my story very quickly one day I was at a meeting and I, I heard I heard this guy speak that about God's forgiveness and I realized that I was a sinner my language was foul at school I wasn't a very nice person at school and just in the middle of a field I got down on my knees beside a straw bale and I cried out to God to forgive me and to become part of my life and to change me from the inside out because I couldn't change myself from the outside in and God did that and that was the beginning of my Christian life I see. Thanks.